If you're visiting with us, we are at Revive right now. We're going through a series we're calling The Abiding Life. And we are looking at a series of Bible stories that are looking at periods of time in which God's people are sitting in a season of mystery, in which things are unclear. There is some painful events happening around them. There is some turmoil in their midst. And generally, I, I've noticed our American culture is we tend to like sitcoms that get done with all the conflict within about 30 minutes. We tend to like movies that last about an hour and a half to maybe two hours in length. If it's a really good one, we can make it to three, maybe even three and a half for a truly epic one. But a lot of times life requires us to sit still and wait in a season of mystery and uncertainty for much longer periods of time. We have looked at the story of Noah being in an ark for a year. We've looked at the story of Jacob and Esau being uh, separated and unreconciled for 20 years. We've looked at the story of uh, Joseph and his brothers going through 22 years before it all comes back together. Last week, we looked at the story of Moses in the wilderness. Now, as we're doing this, and even I'll say this, as you're in one of these seasons of mystery, one of the first things I want to encourage all of us to do is to, though we may wrestle with a lot of things and we may try to figure out what's going on and we may feel all sorts of emotions from anger to frustration to denial to depression to loneliness to discouragement, turn our eyes upon God and see who he really is and hang in there based upon our beliefs about the nature of God. A scripture we're using overall, over and over again to talk about who is God comes from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 4. I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, For you have been a stronghold for the poor person, a stronghold for the needy in his distress, a refuge from storms, and a shade from heat. That is who our God is. Last week we talked about Moses and we took from his circumstances of his birth all the way up to his call by God to go back to Egypt and lead the people out of slavery, the nation of Israel. And I'm going to just give you a couple of things of review. If I was with you, I'd be quizzing people on this, but these are things that I think are real important. And a big part of the reason that they're important is because we at Revive are a front porch people. One of the things I want us to know, it's a little bit about history. We don't know the exact date. We don't know the exact Pharaoh or the exact Egyptian king who was governing during the time where the Israelites were called out of bondage and they started the movement into the promised land and they received the Ten Commandments. But with a little bit of history and a little bit of Bible, we can get in the ballpark. It's very apparent that at the, that period of time, Egypt was actually having some military disagreements and some back and forth and at times of treaty, but it was overall military conflict with two groups of people. One were the Hittites, which were from up in Turkey. Uh, some scholars think they spoke a language similar to Hebrews. Another was the Hyksos. I hope I'm saying that right. The Hyksos or Hyksos which were like the Hebrews, they were nomadic people. They were uh, nomads. And Egypt was going through conflict at that time. And as they were going through conflict with both the Hittites and the Hyksos, they had a group of people in their midst called the Hebrews. And that will become the Israelite people. 
And you might get a little bit confused. I sometimes even do this. Who are these Hebrew people? Well, that's their, the language or what we'd say the linguistic roots or the ethnic roots of the Israelite people. And before they became the nation of Israel, they were ethnically Hebrew. And if even if you were to go to Jude, Israel today, the language that's spoken and the language that's written is Hebrew. That's who they were. Well, the Hyksos and the Hittites had some similarities. So, I mean, if I were to just for a moment, I don't want to do this long, put yourself in Pharaoh's shoes, you've got this large extended family that has been with you for 400 years and they keep multiplying and growing and growing and growing and you're at war with people who are similar to them and the Hebrew people are in your midst. It's not justifiable, but it's understandable that Pharaoh begins to practice genocide. And we talked about that last week. And again, why is it, well, well, let me ask you this, for why is this story about Hittites and Hyksos so important? One of the things I'm really confident about is when I am with Revive, we've got a lot of kids and our kids are smart kids. It's obvious that they are reading, if they can read, they are asking questions, their minds are inquisitive, and as time goes on, they're going to start pushing the boundaries a little bit, and they're going to find things that they discover, and I am confident that our kids, as they grow up, are going to know these Bible stories, but then they're going to start stumbling across people who don't share a belief that these words that we're reading are true, and our kids will need to be able to read the Bible as a historical document and then go and look at other historical documents and flesh out what's happening and be able to explain to people, hey, this is how the Bible fits with all of these documents of history. And in doing that, it's a way to explain our faith. It's being front porch people. I also believe as we have a deep understanding of knowledge, it gives us tools to deal with contemporary issues. Now, a contemporary issue... What Pharaoh did was he practiced genocide. And that is a deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial or a political or a cultural group. I pulled that out of a dictionary. If you went to the UN website, you'd get a bit longer legal definition. But that's the general idea it is. And even though we would tend to see that, you know, Bismarck Mandan is generally a very peaceful place, we have neighbors in our midst. Some will probably be in our building that come from places like historically Armenia, Burundi, the Democratic Republic of Congo or Rwanda. And in the last 100 year, 120 years, in the century previous to this one, all of them suffered a genocide, something similar to what we saw in Exodus chapter 1. And as those people, our neighbors, read this story, it's very personal. Well, we left Moses last week. He has gone through as an infant, living through a genocide. He grew up in the household of Pharaoh, being a child, adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter. He got to the age of 40, and Stephen in Acts 7 says that Moses had all of the skill and the education of the Egyptians. And at the age of 40, he tried to liberate his people by violent impulse, and it wasn't the right time. And I even made the point, violent impulse is generally not a good way to lead. And he had to flee. And Moses spent 40 years living in a wilderness, and my impression is, as he lived in that wilderness, he came to terms with all of his failings, and he was humbled. And after 40 years of humble circumstances, going from what would have been a prince of Egypt to just a humble shepherd, he's called by God. And when we're called by God, 
usually it's a tough wrestling match. It's not a place of easy answers, and we know pretty well God can find somebody better to do what we're being asked to do. He accepts his call. He goes back to Egypt. He meets his brother Aaron. He meets the elders of the nation. He goes before Pharaoh and says these words, let my people go. Now, Pharaoh, the Bible tells us his heart is predisposed to be resistant, to harden his heart, to not listen to Moses in these messages. So God, speaking through Moses and Aaron, says what's going to happen is a series of plagues are going to come. And there are nine different plagues that come. Before we get to the text we're going to talk about today, which is going to be in Exodus chapter 11 to 13, and again, I'm just giving some summaries, trying to keep this tight and use time well. And I would hope that some of you would go home this week, if you haven't read these texts, go home and read it and play around with it and ask some questions and think through it. And let this text sink deep into us, because I think today we often go through these seasons that are long and confusing, these mysteries where we don't quite know what to do. Well, we come to the point, the last plague, which we will call Passover, which the Lord will call Passover. And what he's done is it's foretold. God speaks to Moses, and Moses speaks to Aaron, and Aaron speaks for God to the people. And they are told that at midnight, every firstborn male, both human and livestock, in Egypt would die. Now, I've read this thing many, many times, and I don't know why I have never done this. I sat down this week and said, let me just think about that, because it's going to cause the talks about a wailing throughout Egypt. And I saw it thinking, okay, let me just put the circle of who I'm going to think about as my extended family. If a Passover event happened in my life, who would those firstborn males be? It'd be my Uncle Bob grapevine, it'd be my uncle Ray Jenkins. It'd be my cousin Brian Kirkpatrick, my cousin Scott Jenkins, my cousin Scott Erickshrude, my cousin Brent Gerberding, my cousin Jay Simmering. It would be me. It'd be my son Caleb. It'd be my nephew Garrett, my nephew Josiah, my nephew Joshua. And it'd be a grandchild that's yet to be born. And as I think of all of these people that I deeply love, if at one night at midnight all of us passed away, what a wail, what a torment would go out. And that's what God speaks to Moses and Aaron is coming. Now, the Israelites don't have to live in that fear as we don't have to live in that fear. And here's some instructions. God speaking through Moses and Aaron says these things. One, you need to remember this event, and it's going to be something you need to remember every year, and you need to celebrate it with a, a meal. And the way that this meal has to be prepared is you have to choose one animal, and it has to be a male that's a perfect animal that's a sheep or a goat, and you have to slaughter it at night or just at twilight, you have to take the blood of that animal and put it over the doorpost so that it can be seen that an animal has been killed here and this is its blood. You need to meet together and eat it all in one night. And you can only roast the meat. You can't boil it. It just has to be roasted over a fire and you have to roast everything from the head to the entrails. 
You have to eat it all with those that are gathered in your home. And if you don't think that your family can eat it all, you're supposed to go to some neighbors that have a small families and you all gather together because you try to eat it all at one sitting with the meat and the le bread with no leaven, no yeast, kind of like lefsa, and bitter herbs. And whatever is left, you have to burn it off quickly. You cannot put it in the fridge or smoke it and try to keep it for the next day. It has to all be gone. You must be dressed to travel. And this was both practical for the Israelites because God was saying at that moment, after that midnight comes in which this angel of death passes over and this great outcry comes, the, Israel, the Egyptians are going to cry out and say, leave our land and you have to be ready for travel. And the Israelites were instructed when they eat this Passover meal year after year, they all need to dress up like they're ready to travel. It's putting on sandals and a cloak, it says, but for our day it would be okay. Putting on a good pair of working boots or a good pair of walking shoes and traveling light, but maybe putting on some clothes so that you can go out if it's raining. You're going to go travel. You're going to go quick and light. And you must tell this story repeatedly to your children for generations after generations. And you must talk about who God is. God is seen at this moment of Passover as executing judgment on the Egyptian gods. And the Egyptians have many gods. They are a, a group of people that, that practices idolatry and they keep adding God after God after God. And the story says that God or an angel will pass over and it will see the blood on the doorpost and in those homes where there is that blood, he will not bring death. And this is preparing Israel's hearts, their minds, to receive Jesus Christ in a few thousand years. And let me add this, that sometimes as we're discussing, as people who are Bible people, and we're kind of wrestling with all of these Old Testament stories and what do we do with them, and in a certain way, many of us have a certain familiarity and maybe even a certain comfort with the stories of Jesus and the Gospels. I think one thing that will help us understand Jesus better is if we master the Old Testament stories and master the history and the culture and the theology and all that it's teaching, and then by the time we start to read about Jesus, we see him as the one who takes all of these wounds of our humanity and all of our hopes and brings it all together. And when we try to think, what does it mean to follow Jesus and adopt his ethics and his lifestyle and his means of service, you got to remember that Jesus was reading this, these Old Testament stories and his way of living is taking them and fulfilling them. Helps us better. Well, this Passover, as it's predicted, it happens at midnight. And there's this great outcry because all of the firstborn males have died. And it's from Pharaoh's household down to the servant girl. It's the livestock. It's a death like we have never seen in a night. Pharaoh summons Moses and though he's been going back and forth for the previous nine plagues, he says, it's time to leave. Get out. Take all of your people. Take all of your livestock. Take everything you have and go now. And the Egyptian people are broken. They are wailing and they want them all out too. Pharaoh, in this broken moment, though he asked to be blessed, and the Israelites, as instructed, as they are leaving, they go to their Egyptian neighbors and they ask for silver and gold and clothing. And they are told, the Israelites, as they remember this day, that for the rest of their time period on this earth, anytime there is a firstborn male, 
that firstborn is to be considered consecrated to God, and they have to go to the temple and redeem that firstborn male. And again, this is living out the ideas of the anticipation of the Christ. Well, Israel leaves quickly that night, and they quickly transition from being a poor nation of nomadic slaves to these wealthy nomads. They have been in Egypt for over 400 years, and as we have seen this journey, they have transitioned from being this large, dysfunctional family to now coming out, not as just the Hebrew people, but who are the family of Israel. They are coming out as the nation of Israel. But as they come out as a new nation, I want you to make sure you see this because I think it tells something about how God works in our life. They really do not understand who God is. They understand a little bit of their old stories. They understand the mystery and the pain that they are living in. They understand that Moses has spoken a few words and they understand they've seen nine plagues, but they really don't understand God very well. He's revealing himself to him. And one of the things I would encourage you to do, and I hope some of you are doing this, if you've picked up Exodus 1 and you've come all the way to Exodus 13, to notice in these sections of text, the story which is, which is history keeps inserting what I'll call theology, keeps inserting all of these statements about God and God is revealing himself. He's talking about who he is and then he's doing events that prove it. And I made a quick list. He, he talks about he's the God of the Hebrews. He talks about the God who guides generations as he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This special word of God, I am, or some will say Yahweh, meaning I have been existent from all time and I exist through all time in everything in life I define. He's a God who's a deliverer. He's a God who's a judge. He's a God who gives good things to his people. He's a God with foreknowledge who knows where this world is going and we should trust him to plan for us. He's a God who changes hearts and he can change hearts to make them bitter or change hearts to make them soft. He's the God who's worthy of worship and the call is to let my people go so they can come worship me in the wilderness. He's a miracle worker and as I've given my list, I'm confident I have not done an adequate job of describing all the magnificent names and roles of God. Please read through it and put some thought into his nature. As we look at this story, I want us to be aware that Jesus himself becomes our Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 says, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If you read through the New Testament or you go into a BibleGateway.com and you put up the word Passover and you say, I'm going to search from Matthew through Revelation, you will notice when the stories in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John shift from the stories about all Jesus is doing and all Jesus is teaching to the story of his death, burial, and resurrection, what comes up is all of those events happen during the Passover. When the nation of Israel has returned to Jerusalem to celebrate their feast, and their eyes are remembering the great suffering they went through of 400 years in Egypt, of being a group of slaves, of being nomadic, of really not having a national identity, of not having God describe himself in ways in which they understood, and all of a sudden it comes to fruition in the Passover. And their eyes are saying, we still are a people living in mystery and need of hope. Now, 
We have been looking through these stories. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Where do we fit in this? We've been looking at Hebrews chapter 11 frequently, and I want to read you a little passage about it that talks about Moses and the Passover and saying, where do we fit? By faith, he, and that's Moses, instituted the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. Moses initiated this Passover to set the, a story that for the nation of Israel and Judah would be one of their defining stories. And I think for us, it's also a moment where we recognize sometimes we live through long seasons of mystery, and sometimes we have very dark nights where our emotion is to wail out of all of the loss. And in that wailing, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He comes and his blood protects us. He heals us. He gives us hope. And we find that we can be a new people. What should we do then? Reading a passage, and I'm going to ask you to stand for this one. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As you go out this week, I'm going to ask, as you're sitting around with your kids or maybe with a neighbor or a friend, here's a question. Does your family have a yearly traditional meal or meals that remind you of God's action in your family history? Ask that question, do we have this tradition? And if so, I want you to tell about it and kick this around. Why do we need these type of meals and these type of stories and these type of memories and how do we create them? Let me close with the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty God, who has given thy only Son to be unto us both a sacrifice for sin and also an example of godly life. Give us grace that we may always most thankfully receive that his inestimable benefit and also daily endeavor ourselves to follow the blessed steps of his most holy life. Through the same thy Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Go with God.